Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Bonus episode number eight, covering the Christmas holiday in the United States. And I guess everywhere that Christmas is celebrated, probably. We're joining you to every week to talk uh, IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier on in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VDreamin on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy at network nerd underscore hey nick uh happy holidays uh merry christmas whatever it is that you celebrate happy christmas on kwanzaa isn't that how you're supposed to say it oh wow that would that just rolled off the tongue a little bit too easily <laughs> been waiting for that <laughs> for the listeners out there we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in it operations we hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral relevant across disciplines and remain timeless if you're enjoying our content Please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip, John. Awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, today we're going to do an episode kind of uh, a little bit um, off the beaten path of, of what we've done. Um, we're going to talk about books that have uh, shaped our thinking. Um, this is kind of a bonus episode, you know, we're both off for the, the Christmas holiday and we're probably going to do something like this, uh, next week as well. Um, just right up, up front, like one of the things that I've been thinking about, um, is that we've been pretty good recently about making sure that any book recommendations that we or our, um, guests make are in the show notes one thing that I want to commit to doing in 2020, hopefully very early on, is making sure that there's a spot on the Nerd Journey website that has a complete list of all the books that have been recommended. And we might have to like kind of grind away at that, but I think that's something that we should do. Let's make sure that we get every book that's been recommended and, you know, who recommended it, which episode that was on, maybe the approximate you know, closest time code that we have. Um, so if somebody's interested in, and why somebody uh, recommended a book, then they can go back and listen to that segment. What do you think? I think that's a great idea, but I do think you're one week early. I mean, this is the Christmas episode. What you just said is a new year's resolution. I feel like that fits better next week, but <laughs> that's cool. It's a great idea. I, I agree. And I think it would be helpful to a lot of folks. Awesome. To be clear, like this this week, it's books that shaped John White's thinking, right? Ah, okay, yeah. So maybe this week we'll do um, the books that have shaped my thinking, and next week we'll do the books that have shaped your thinking, and that's our uh, our one two punch for the holiday season. So let's get into it. Is it okay if I just jump into like my list and 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 maybe the the things that you uh, are curious about? you know, the books you can, you can ask me about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So out of the gate, number one, not a book. That's right. It's a book recommendation list. And my first thing that shaped my thinking is not a book. <laughs> no. Okay. So I'm cheating a little bit. Um, the thing that shaped my thinking that I realized is this uh, video series called Connections in the 70s by a uh, journalist called James Burke. Uh, he's a British uh, journalist. Um, and he did eventually write a book um, based on this PBS series. Um, but the PBS series is fascinating. It's documentary format. I think there's 10 episodes. 
um, I went out and dropped like probably a hundred bucks on the DVD series when that was the thing to do. Uh, rewatched it. Fascinating. It was actually fascinating to see how much of my thinking had been shaped by this video series that came out in the seventies. And I must've watched when I was a little kid on, on repeats in the eighties or, you know, or, um, but yeah, very, it's very fascinating. I, I specifically, uh, okay. So the reason why, like, I realize that this is like, you know, fundamental to the way I think about things is like the thesis statement. I, I don't know that there is a thesis statement for the show, but if I had to come up with one, it's that um, the way that we think about history as a series of like uh, pivotal events that are surrounded by like uh, great historical figures. And um, it's even formalized into what's called uh, the great man theory of history. And we'll try to put a link to that you know, maybe the Wikipedia page or something. And so this uh, book and the video series is a strong reaction against that. The idea that like, I think he's focusing more on technological advances. Like, you know, so we have these like, you know, towering um, people in our minds, like, you know, Thomas Edison, who personally went and tested, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, formulations for the, the, the light bulb before he came across the right one, like um, kind of not actually how history and technological advance actually work. Right. So he has this um, uncovers like basically a series of uh, small iterative advances and people who like learn about something in one way in one uh, industry and then like kind of trip across a different industry and take that and and um uh that advanced technological advance and apply it to a slightly different industry and then somebody else makes a slight tweak to it and then somebody else makes a slight tweak to it and then sometimes like somebody makes the final tweak to it and the entire thing is named after that one person <laughs> the last person who did like one tiny little uh improvement on this entire series of things that have been building up over decades um I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a, there's actually a, you know, some of the episodes are up on YouTube and there is a, an episode called faith and numbers um, where he kind of examines like uh, the cam, which is kind of like on a rotating shaft, there's a little uh, protrusion. So as the shaft rotates around, it can like uh, push something up. So it's turning rotational uh, mechanical force into kind of a linear force. And that is um, uh, applied to a specific industry, and then it's applied to a different industry, and then it's applied to the weaving industry. And then they go, you know, what would be really helpful is if we had like kind of a card um, that like keeps like all of the, the places where, you know, information needs to be stored, like, you know, whether this thread goes up or down or is included in the pattern, not included in the pattern because these patterns are super complicated and fashion dictates that we generate these super complicated patterns. And then somebody else is like, Oh man, these cards like on pieces of paper are great, but what if they were kind of linear and we could just kind of uh, stack cards on top of each other and somebody else goes, well, what if they were made out of metal and you could just kind of swap them out? And then you could just kind of line them up. And then eventually it turned into the punch card, which somebody wanted to store like census information on. 
Uh, so like any individual card was like, oh, this was a uh, person who lived in uh, this city, but they were an immigrant from this country and this is how old they are and punched out all this information about it. And then they created a machine that would go through and sort all those cards and you could analyze different information. Well, you can probably see where this is going. That turned into like the computer punch card, right? Which is how like computers were programmed for a while. And then, you know, that turned into um, useful programmable computers. So like, and that all came from like the loom, right? But even before that, it, you know, it was, it was previous. And so like, you know, there, there weren't people, I mean, I'm sure that there were people who were very uh, influential in doing those things, but it was like, that he points out even we call it the jacquard loom because of this guy jacquard but like he was like the per the like the the 13th person in this iterative uh process of improving the loom and then somehow the loom was named after him <laughs> but uh fascinating you know and it just what feel like giant leaps forward in technology you know, oftentimes it's like the collision and integration of like incremental advances and from a bunch of different places all coming together, you know, and maybe there's like one person who does the final integration or, you know, the final iteration, but, you know, it, it's just a fascinating way to think about technological advance advances and, and history advancing that like, I believe today, right. It's not, it's not about, like one like amazing person, you know, with this perfect visionary. There's all these people behind the scenes working on stuff and, and constantly improving by small bits and small innovations. So I have two comments on that. Well, the first one's a question. Sure. How many sets of encyclopedias did you buy during this time to read through as you were watching the video series? Oh man, that is super tempting. And, uh, like I, I would say that like we did end up buying like the like the Encyclopedia Britannica, like the you know, the the fourteen volume one, like you know, with addendums. I don't know that it was about that. I think that, you know, I don't know, maybe there's an encyclopedia salesman. But in today's like um Wikipedia era, like the fact that you can look up this stuff is so amazing. Like that's exactly what I did as I was rewatching um some of these videos. I was like, wait tell me more about this card loom. Wait, who is this other person who made, you know, tell me the full story behind that, you know? And yeah, fascinating, fascinating. My other, com appreciate that. My other comment is it sounds like these multiple touches to make a technology, what it is, isn't that different from the multiple people that have influences in our lives that help us with career. You know, you may hear about somebody who made this big jump to a, a new career height that you maybe didn't think that they were capable of, but it's it's not necessarily a product of one specific thing they did. They've been doing a lot of things to shape and mold themselves and new iterations on their capabilities, their personality, building that brand. Uh, that's what it made me think of. I mean, that is exactly right. I mean, and I'm, I'm glad that you uh, picked up on that and uh made it explicit because it's something that was kind of tickling around the edges is like if history works this way like why can't individuals work this way right and it's like oh it feels like you know again like the way you said this person has made like a giant jump forward is like well did they make a giant jump forward or were there just small things that were stacking on top of other small things or attacking stacking on top of other small things and then suddenly there was like 
a breakthrough of, you know, recognition of new capabilities and, and career growth that like took that person to a different place. So I, I don't know that that's kind of like really foundational in my mind. Right. So anytime mm-hmm. people talk about like giant leaps forward and like, you know, one visionary, I'm always pretty skeptical <laughs> about the, the, the power of like one person to like steer something forward. Like it's, it's probably, you know, this analysis afterwards by historians are like, well, yeah, that one person did this one thing, but that was, you know, they, you know, they put the final brick in the wall, right? Like that's the, the only way that, you know, that, that you can uh, think about it without all these other people and all these other steps forward, they would not have been able to take the final step forward. Right. We don't need no education by the way, John. (laughs) Right. So that aside, that's kind of the first book, um, which is, you know, it was a book after as a video series. Um, so, um, again, we'll, I think have like a YouTube link and then also like a link to the actual book. If you want to check that out as well. Um, I don't know, maybe we'll try to put in a link to like, I don't know, buy the videos if, if that's what you want to do or, um, uh, but you can get a pretty good taste of what they're about on YouTube for free. And if you want to financially support that afterwards and, and see all of them, cause not all the episodes are on, then, uh, then you should go out and, and buy that and then maybe, uh, read the book as well. And, and if you need to check out some of those encyclopedia Britannica volumes that John mentioned, I think I see them on his bookshelf back here. So just reach out to him at V journeyman and, and he'll let you know if you can, you can borrow those for a while. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Physical encyclopedia volumes. How very 1987 of you. <laughs> All right. Um, second book um, is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, it was actually pretty difficult for me to narrow down um my book list to just one Malcolm Gladwell book. I realized that, um, that he's had a pretty strong influence on, on my thinking, like, and is probably like one of the authors that I've like read multiple books on and and taken multiple things from. Like, I I don't think that he's like a, a perfect historian or perfect journalist or anything like that, but, you know, very interesting framing of topics and uh, outliers, you know, okay. So the subtitle is the story of success and it's really re-examining our ideas of what successful people, uh, where they come from and how they're, you know, quote unquote made or like how they kind of evolve or, you know, um, a lot of times we talk about, um, you know, people having innate talent and, you know, maybe there are like certain genetic advantages to people like, you know, it's tough to like, you know, for a five, seven person to work really hard and become like six foot nine. Right. But, um, those aside, like there, there's, you know, the idea that like success is kind of innate in the person is, is a very, is a myth basically. And so he examines, like that from a couple different ways and tells a couple different stories. Like the first one, okay, he calls it the Matthew effect. Um, and I think that comes from a Bible verse, uh, 2529. It, it's something about, you know, um, for to everyone who has more will be given 
and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away? Yes, that's Matthew it exactly. 25, 29. Yep. So the idea is, you know, um, he looks at uh, something and uh, he's basically reporting on this, right? This is not like original research, but um, somebody looked at uh, a <laughs> the National Hockey League um, and they're looking at kind of the, the roster of um, the it's called the, the, the Memorial cup, which is kind of like the, I'll, I'll call it like the high school age championships. It's, it's a little, it skews a little bit older than that up to like, I think age 20. Um, but it's basically, you know, you could call it the unofficial national sport of Canada. And this championship is like all the best Canadian teams across, you know, three, the three top leagues uh, in Canada. And it's like, you know, these, this is like, should be the ultimate meritocracy. Right. But what they did was looked at analysis of, um, of, of all the people on these rosters. And they're like, wait a minute, like there's this huge bias to people who were like born earlier in the year rather than later in the year. And the, like the thought experiment went, well, you know, this is how like these leagues work. Like when you like, have like a national obsession with with hockey like the like country of canada has like they have youth leagues that feed into slightly higher level youth leagues you know in every single age group like from like five and maybe even younger right and so you might have like a local team but then there's like an all-star team and maybe a travel team and those people get a you know identified who are like talented like pretty early and so they get like extra coaching and get to go to clinics and, you know, summer, you know, uh, training and, and all this stuff. And so like the marginal advantages that like they have like early on get stacked on top of like the fact that they've been identified as a talented individual. And so they get more attention and more coaching, more training, like for a long period of time. So early identification of like, you know, Oh, Hey, you're pretty talented results in like, you know, this bias towards, you know, those people have gotten attention for almost their entire like lives for, for this thing that they do. But when you're like five or six years old and you've been born in January and this is the way the leagues work in Canada, like it's the birth year, right? So you have like January birth kids going up against December birth kids, like in the same birth year they sometimes have like a full year of growth ahead of time. And when you're talking about like a 27 year old and a 28 year old, that's like marginal, right? But a six year old versus, you know, versus a five year old, that can be like an entire year of growth is like gigantic. So it can be, wow, this person is talented and he's more coordinated and blah. blah. It's like, yeah, but he's like 11 year, 11 months older. Right. So, the advantage might not be talented. It might just be age. And the fact that they were able to like identify these like 19 and 20 year olds and the vast, like it was such a huge bias against, uh, uh, four people that were born in January, February, and March and against people that were born in like November, December, uh, October, November, December. Um, it, 
it was like if you just look at it, it it was like obvious and that once they looked at it they couldn't unsee it and they went well what about other leagues and like so they went to other countries youth leagues and they saw the exact same thing and they went to other sports and they saw the exact same thing (laughs) right so um and it's even like kind of spilled over into um parents like wanting to you know quote unquote red shirt their kids in kindergarten so that they're a year older and a little more social and you know are looked at as leaders you know not even playing sports just doing better in school right whether or not that's an actual good idea is debatable but it's like um kind of snuck into the mainstream and and that's is the originating like experiment you know uh, or um version of this it comes from this analysis of like sports so uh you might have you know maybe you know slightly or marginally more talent but you know if you have the same amount of talent but you're in hockey but you're born in november and you know you're slightly better than all the other people who were born in november uh but you're, you know, 11 months younger than the people that were born in, in January or whatever, then, you know, it just, just doesn't come out. So, you know, you have this age bias. So those, that, that's the thesis, right. Is like a more equitable way is to like identify people early and then compare them to their peers, you know, one month within one or two months and have completely separate leagues, but that's maybe not realistic and maybe not able to be done. So, um, you know, you might say, oh, these are the most talented people. These are, you know, it's a total meritocracy, but that's kind of a fallacy. So that's like one source of success. And then like, he also popularized like, you know, another part of the book, um, the 10,000 hour rule, right? It's like the idea that like, if you practice hard at something for 10,000 hours, like that, that's what's going to show up as, um, you know, the, the best and highest level of professional, um, version of that. And, and I think the original identification of this was in like music students and like the ones who they, they looked at them in like conservatories and like, well, the ones who had practiced like 10,000 hours in their lives were the ones who were on track to become professional, like, like solo musicians, the ones who had, you know, practiced slightly less than that, like, you know, six or 7,000 hours were like, well, you might, you know, eventually make it, um, and maybe into like, you know, third chair in an orchestra or something like that. And then the ones below that were like, eh, you might be a music teacher. Like, or I, I don't know why that is like lower value, but it was like not a soloist on tour. Right. So, um, that was the differentiating factors, like um, the amount of practice. And then he went back and went, well, you can uh, imagine again in that hockey example, it's like, all those kids who were identified early got more attention and got more training and practiced more, you know, every single year practiced way more than their peers because they were going to these all-star or touring teams and getting better coaching and then, you know, going to summer camps and, and so on and so forth. So um, again, it's that like incremental advantage over long periods of time sustained that actually leads to success and not like some kind of like innate talent. Right. Um, so it, it was just a really interesting view and like, it made me question like, like the myths that I guess that I had about like what makes people successful. 
right? Like sometimes like grinding hard work towards something is the way to do it, not like innate talent. And like, just because some, somebody like looks like they're better. And I think I said this right before, it's like, they were probably just bad at that, like before you saw them and then they worked really hard. So does that mean you have a bias toward people who are more talented and want to help them more? as the owner and operator of the John White School of Mentoring? <laughs> I think uh, my bias is towards, like, uh, just like anybody else, my bias is towards people who think exactly like me <laughs> and agree with me. Or, But, you know, like, I'm sure that, like, people have a bias towards people who take their advice, right? That's the other thing. Um, sure. So that's my honest answer to your joking question. <laughs> okay. Well, if you need advice, send that tweet out to Adner Journey today for pricing and packaging so that you can join the John White School of Mentoring and get that advice. Right. <laughs> and read all these books just like John has. Yeah, yeah. If you I'm sure that if you quote back all this stuff to me, it'll I'll just be like, Oh wow, you think exactly like me. You should get like tons of my attention. Yeah, discount, <laughs> discount, discount. <laughs> yeah, you'll get a discount off our mythological uh, store. <laughs> Mythical. So next book on the same theme, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Um, subtitle, Greatness Isn't Born, It's Grown, Here's How. Right, so Daniel Coyle like took this idea. It was actually based on the same original research that Malcolm Gladwell, um, you know, was reporting on this idea of the ten thousand hour rule. And then he refined it a little bit, and he went, "Well, actually, the people who were talking about this and doing this research, like they talked about like way more." And he actually did some original uh, journalism on this, and and went around and visited places and talked to other people, and and so he identified. Um, kind of his framework, right? It's not just 10,000 hours. Like if you noodle around for 10,000 hours, then that's not going to help. And it's not just working hard. You can work really hard in the wrong way for 10,000 hours and not be where you should be, right? So he identifies this thing called deep practice, which is, I mean, maybe this is a gross oversimplification, but if you're practicing at something and then you make a mistake and you know that you made a mistake, you should immediately stop go back and try to do it correctly. Not like just kind of power through it and, you know, make mistakes, make mistakes, make mistakes, got to the end. Okay. Now I'm going to go back and start over and try to do the whole thing better. No, like when you make a mistake, identify what the mistake was right in the moment, back up, try to do better. You know, um, I think they use music students again as an example. And it's like, wait, identify like where you, you know, had, you know, had a missed note back up, try to, do that section of the song again uh, and identify where you're doing it correct, you know, incorrectly and, and do it correctly. Um, if you have to slow down, then you slow down and then slowly speed up until you get back up to the tempo where you were, as opposed to just powering through the entire song, missing a bunch of notes. Like that's not the kind of practice that, that will actually get you to improve. It's like self-identifying the mistakes, going back, correcting the mistakes. That's what he's calling deep practice. And that is the kind of practice that you need to actually improve things. So that was one thing. Then he identified the idea of uh, ignition, which is kind of like what lit the fire in you originally, right? Like we all need that um, in order to sustain, you know, 10,000 hours of deep practice. Like you need to have something 
inside of you and it doesn't need to be like oh that's innate right like he actually fights against that he's like there's a lot of social things that um that are that are social cues that like are um you know kind of pounded into us that like um make us like reach for things and achieve things he the he cites a study and it was like the it was an interesting birth order study of like top like cornerbacks and running backs and sprinters right and inevitably they were like maybe the youngest in the family or like pretty late in the birth order and so the thesis was or the hypothesis was they had been kind of over the course of their entire lives they had been like what had been pounded into them was like hey you got to keep up right you got you got to hurry up because you're holding us all back as like the youngest or the smallest right so you have to compete with like the older kids in your family uh just to keep up right you have to speed up and so maybe that was one of the reasons why they were faster than everybody uh when they were measured against their peers so um that idea of like a message that was pounded into you and or ignited or uh, it was interesting there was another interesting site about like uh i think um was a golf tournament that was like seen by a bunch of uh um people uh, like a south korean woman or a woman of korean descent like broke through in a professional golf tournament and then like 15 years later like um, like a, a strong plurality of female golfers on the professional women's golfing tour were south korean right because it had been seen and it was like this amazing model and it had this huge social impact and then like it like lit the fire for an entire generation of girls to like reach for that to be professional golfers uh, you know you probably see that in a lot of different things and then the final idea was master coaching so you 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 know a lot of times you know if identifying mistakes and going back and fixing them is critical to practice a lot of times what we need is a third party person to help you identify what those mistakes are because you don't always know what they are right especially for a new endeavor and then there's also another idea which is like you know you kind of need somebody to help like keep that ignition fire lit to fan the flames like to keep keep the fire burning right and master coaches oftentimes can say the same lesson in a bunch of different ways to best communicate understand what the best way to get that message across to the student is and uh and so that student hears it and understands and keeps them excited about it it sounds like what you're talking about is what a really good manager should be like yeah in supporting your career goals and helping with skills gaps but also you described what a very good teacher should be like. Yep. So it, it resonated two times for me. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Need to read that one for sure. Yeah. That's a great book. The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. I have to put it in my audible queue. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great audible listen to. Um, I want to speed up a little bit. Uh, the next book is your brain at work by David rock. Um, so there's one like critical thing that I took from this it, just in general, it's about um, understanding the biology of the brain and attention and the fact that the brain is like this huge energy consumer in your body. 
And so like literally if your blood sugar is too low, you it's difficult to think and to have sustained attention on anything. And like, because of the way your body works, like you have like, you know, a lot of that attention to spend like earlier on in the day. And the longer the day goes, the tougher it is to actually do complicated uh, mental work. Um, this is kind of a generalization, but as you know, he's talking about the biology of the brain. So he was talking about the most difficult things to do. You should probably do earlier in the morning and the, the, the most kind of like repetitive, like work that you don't need to really think about, you should schedule for later in the day. And one of the things that he says is the most difficult to do is to uh, make decisions about what's important to do and in what order, because you have to kind of pull from your long-term memory, like what the task is, pull from your other long-term memory, the details on another task, compare the two things, decide what's, you know, do make a value judgment about them and then put one of those things away and then put them both away and then, you know, compare it to something else and something else and something else. That is like one of the more difficult things to do. So you should do it earlier on and then not revisit it as much as possible. You know, life isn't perfect, but, you know, you can say, well, I've kind of programmed my day. Uh, maybe if there's an emergency, I, you know, I weigh it against those things, but you know, for the most part, I've made a decision at 7am about what my day is going to be about or, or whatever it is, you know, that you, however you apply that in your mind. So, so that was, um, the lesson I got from your brain at work from David Rock. It, it, you know, it's a big book, a lot more interesting ideas in there, but that's like the one that I kind of live with. I'm going to touch on some similarities to that when I do my list. So okay. I, I have something that will naturally follow this. Nice. Um, next book, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning by Andy Hunt. Um, subtitle, Refactor Your Wetware. Um, and this is actually from a programming series. <laughs> like the, the, um, uh, the publisher was putting out a programming series. And so this was like uh, um, kind of a, you know, you can apply this like uh, refactoring thing to your own brain and the way that you're doing things. Um, so, uh, again, like the, uh, I'll try to cut this short and, you know, summarize a little bit better. The one thing that I kind of take away and like constantly remember from this book is the idea or mental model of the way the brain works. Um, and you know, it might not be a hundred percent true, but it's a pretty good mental model, which is, um, imagine, uh, that your brain has two modes of working. One is a storytelling mode where you, you, you do an analysis from like, you know, the, this is the way, you know, my life has worked in the past, you know, like, uh, this, you know, all these things are, have, these are all the effects that have led up to, you know, what I'm experiencing right now and, and why I'm here and, and some judgments and, and then maybe like a future storytelling like okay so because i'm doing this i'm making these decisions here's the things you know the effects that are going to you know potentially have in the future it might be this way it might be this way it might be this way so that's storytelling mode right and the second mode is experiential which is like when you're just in the moment experiencing the thing right and you can't in this model be in both modes at the same time Right. So if you're telling a story about 
something that you're doing, you're not in the moment experiencing what you're doing. If you're listening to somebody talking and you're comparing that to your life and saying, well, I'm going to apply it this way and, you know, do this as a result, you can't be just in the moment experiencing the thing. So you kind of have to, you know, there's this idea of like policing yourself and saying like, well, I'm going to be in experiential mode right now and not worry about the past or the future. You know, I'm just going to be 100% in the present. And that is something that, you know, for the most part, like it's very difficult for us to do, like to like kind of police ourselves and just be in experiential mode. Um, But one of the, I don't remember if this was in the book or not, but is this prevalence of like people having like insights um, into what they should do or something like comes comes to them like like on a on a run while they're exercising or in the shower, and when you're like exercising, it's very difficult to not be in the moment because like sometimes like you know physical pain or exertion or whatever is drowning out your ability to like think about the past and the future. Like all you can do is be right there in the moment, right? In the shower, a lot of your senses are overwhelmed by um, by sound by like physical sensation, by heat, you know, or cold, if you take cold showers, you know, all those things work to like overcome your ability to actually be in storytelling mode. So you can only be in experiential mode and in experiential mode, you have access to like different ways of thinking and your brain kind of just, you know, works in the background and might generate more insights. So that's uh, your brain at work, or sorry, pragmatic thinking and learning by Andy Hunt and some of the stuff that, um, I took away from that. I I love learning about how the brain works. It's a good stuff. I think this next one you you recommended on a previous episode. I don't have the episode number offhand, but I'll put it in the show notes. I feel like that's the first time that that's ever happened. Uh, the next book is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Uh, Annie Duke was a professional poker player for a while. I think she's retired now and and really seems to make her living talking about like lessons that she learned about thinking and making decisions by being a professional poker player and applying them to like non-poker situations, right? So um, very fascinating uh, book. And I think I probably finished or read more of it after I originally made the recommendation. Which was um, episode 19, by the way. <laughs> wow, that far long ago. Huh? Okay. Um yeah. So, you know, main point, main points, you know, that I'm trying to extract this, like uh, decision making, like oftentimes we make decisions in life based on imperfect information, right? We don't know everything about it, but we make assumptions. We say, um, I'm pretty sure it's this way, pretty sure it's this way, pretty sure it's this way. As a result, I think the best decision is to do X, right? And what she's saying is that we need to recognize that and be conscious of the fact that we are making assumptions about things and stop thinking about those assumptions as like kind of black and white. Well, I'm pretty sure it's this way, pretty sure it's this way. And when you say pretty sure what you're saying in your brain unconsciously is I'm a hundred percent sure or 99% sure that the situation is X instead of 
the you know spectrum of other possibilities right so she says like hey you need to avoid those kind of like absolutist or black and white thinking and and really be okay with your uncertainty then you need to like kind of get into the habit of like saying this is how uncertain i am about it or how certain and assign a number like a percentage i'm like 40 percent sure that it's this way right out of all the the possibilities of what it could be i'm like 40 percent sure that the that really what it is is this and and 40 percent weighed against everything that it could be is actually pretty certain <laughs> right so if you're starting to say oh, i'm 60 percent sure that might be like the most sure that you could be about anything right that isn't like that you don't actually have information about like through direct observation so um maybe you should start not only assigning a percentage, but actually recording those percentages for these important informa- uh, decisions that you're making in your life. Like, I'm, you know, here's the assumptions that I'm making, here's the things that I'm not sure about, here's the percentage sure that I am. And then finally, like, record and revisit those kind of um, uh, percentage, you know, how sure you were about something. And in the, um, uh, for those important, like kind of pivotal decisions, like maybe it's a, you're going to make a pitch or you're trying to like get a project approved. And, um, some of the things that you're making assumptions about are the things that are important to the boss that you're pitching about. Um, and you're like, I'm pretty, you know, before you would say, I'm pretty sure he, uh, or she cares about this. And based on that, I'm going to pitch this way, right? I want to get this project approved. So, but what you really should do is say, well, I'm like 60% sure that they care about this. You know, they've hinted that this is the most important thing. And then they've hinted that this is the second most important thing. And they have implied that this is the third most important thing. And I'm, you know, 40% sure about the second thing. And I'm 30% sure about the third thing. Um, This is why I'm thinking those things, right? Maybe because this is such an important project or such an important decision that you need to record those things, right? And then go back afterwards when you have more information about that and revisit, okay, I was this sure about this. What was the actual reality? You know, if you're wrong about it, that doesn't mean that you were wrong about your, how the percentage sure you were, right? You were just saying like, I'm 99% sure there was this and it was not like, was it really the 1% or that you shouldn't have been as sure as you were? right? Like maybe you should have been 40% sure, which is like, again, 40% that it's one way, but against the entire spectrum of possibilities, you know, 40% is actually pretty sure, right? So again, kind of go back and, and how good are you at your assumptions and your percentage chances of being sure and, and recognize that, um, just because, uh, you had a certain percentage chance that you were that you that you were right about something and you weren't right doesn't mean that your percentage was wrong it just means that um what ended up being tr- your assumption was incorrect your percentage chance of being correct might have been absolutely correct right so um you have to distinguish between was my assumption correct and the percentage weight that my assumption was correct like those are two separate things, but you need to revisit like, cause if you start saying 90%, 90%, 90% and like 
50% of the time, your 90% sures are incorrect, then your 90% was wrong, right? That, that's not actually like, and you need to like recalibrate how sure you are of things, right? Recalibrate down. So that's um, kind of my takeaways and Annie Duke's thinking and bets. And, and that podcast in which we mentioned it was process over outcomes, which fits that mantra yeah. perfectly. Yeah. And dreaming in bands. Ooh, okay. One of my favorite episodes, by the way. Yeah. That was a really good one. We'll try to add a link into that, into the show notes too. And finally, um, well, I said it was difficult to have just one Malcolm Gladwell book. Um, and I didn't have it, you know, have just one. Um, the final book is also a Malcolm Gladwell book called The Tipping Point. Um, subtitle, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. Um, one of the first, I, you know, first part of the book is like, uh, or maybe as a, a thesis is like the reasons why ideas spread and some ideas spread and some ideas don't. And like the, I think the first example he talks about was, you know, kind of the story in American history of the ride of Paul Revere the British are coming, the British are coming, right? Rode around New England or his part of Massachusetts, like warning people that the British are coming in and motivated people to get ready for it. Well, you know, that, again, in the story that he tells, there's this guy called William Daw who also rode around. Like, you know, Paul Revere went one way and William Daw went the other way. William Daw was like completely unsuccessful at getting anybody to pay attention to him and his ride through uh, the New England uh, countryside and nobody paid attention to him. And so why was Paul Revere able to like, like get people to pay attention and William Dot unable to. And so he um, posits the idea. Um, and again, I think this is like something that he's reporting on, not something that he discovered and he's a journalist, not a researcher. Um, the idea of connectors, mavens and salesmen and that's the law of the few the first part of the book he's like this is why people you know one of the reasons why ideas spread there's connectors who know a lot of different people and a lot from a lot of different parts of life you know so they're very connected into multiple different communities and can make a lot of introductions to a lot of different um people right so that's one element of uh idea spreading. So Paul Revere was a connector. When he rode into a, a small town, he knew exactly which doors to knock on because he knew who could uh, motivate the other people in that uh, town, right? And so he could be very effective, whereas William Daw was just kind of willy-nilly knocking on doors trying to, to get people to wake up and pay attention to him. Uh, mavens are the second group and the mavens are able to actually make like strong recommendations that they're information consumers. And then they, uh, you know, after consuming a bunch of different information, they'll make strong recommendations. So, um, you know, if they're able to, you know, be part, uh, connector, somebody's able to be part connector and part maven, you know, so be able to make a good recommendation and then make it to, you know, a lot of different people in a lot of different places, those ideas are going to spread a little bit better. Um, like more of a pure maven needs to probably make, uh, have a recommendation and then have a connector who can actually, uh, like, spread that idea around a little bit better because um, they know the right people to talk to. And then the final 
group of people or the final model of person who can spread ideas is the salesman or salesperson, right? So that person is very persuasive. So you have um, people who know a lot of people, people who can make strong, really good recommendations, and people who are able to persuade people of ideas. So when you have the, a collision of those, you know, three types of, of people like um, pushing an idea, then those ideas are more likely to spread. Second part of this book is the stickiness factor. Um, like what actually causes ideas that are posited to you to actually stick with you. And then the third is the power of context. And I don't want to like just recap the entire book, but like it was just so influential to the way I think about, um, you know, why, you know, certain things are making a difference and uh, other things aren't. Right? With certain people, you know, work in certain, can work in certain ways and why other people have different strengths, right? So... That was The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. So I only have one question, John, as we get close to wrap up. Which one of those is your absolute favorite and which one made the most impact on the way you think? They may be the same, but they may be different. Yeah. So I think that connections is the most foundational. Um, I watched the entire series, um, the video series once with my wife recently, and I had just kind of raved about it. And we watched it, and it was the first time I'd seen it in like 20 or 30 years. Um, like maybe since like the mid-80s when it was rebroadcast on PBS. And it was kind of uh, a look at oh, wow, this is why my brain works this way. This is why I think about things this way. It was actually kind of shocking how foundational it was to, you know, a, and how it was like a deep part of who I am. <laughs> um, so I think that's actually pretty easy. Like my favorite is, is actually a little bit different, and that's probably The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. The idea, and this is such a sticky and like um, – persuasive idea that um, what it takes to be good at something is not being innately good at it. Like there's no such thing as being innately good at something, right? All there is is having like a lot of time uh, to practice at the thing the right way, um, uh, a passion to be better at that thing. And then, you know, master coaching that has helped you improve at that thing. And, and people who look like just innately better have had those things when you weren't looking. Right. Um, you know, we, one of the, why is like Michael Jordan, one of the best basketball players, like the thing that like, I think most people are starting to recognize now was like, you know, he wasn't, he didn't make his like, you know, varsity basketball team when he was a freshman in high school. Right. He, uh, was he went to school college for four years, right? And uh, wasn't drafted first overall. But the thing that you know ended up you know being the difference maker was he like he was one of the most like competitive people in the NBA, maybe in the history of the NBA. Like like competitive to like the point where people didn't like him, <laughs> and that's starting to come out a little bit more. Like you know like he would you know practice more than anybody else 
right? Even when he was already the best person on the team, maybe in the best best person, you know, player in the league, like obsessive about practicing and improving. Um, and that's what it takes to be the best. But all that it takes to be good is to have like a different, you know, level of intensity of that thing, right? Deep practice at something, you know, ignition to like keep you like, you know, to kick off that practice and sustain that practice. And then, you know, coaching to like, you know, from a third party to say, Hey, you're making this mistake. Hey, you need to improve this. Um, so, you know, again, the collision of those things can make you a better version of, of who you are. And, um, I, I really like that idea. You know, it, it doesn't have to be innate. You, you have the power to affect that right with time practice ignition and coaching hashtag mic drop <laughs> i wish i'd written the book but uh, you know all, hopefully what i am is uh, a little bit of a maven and a little bit of a connector trying to spread uh the this idea out to other people sound kind of like a salesman too but that's just my opinion yeah i you know honestly like i like read the book and i was like you know, okay, so one of my new goals is to be a little bit of each of those things. Like, you know, I don't have to be the the ultimate maven. I don't, you know, I'm probably never going to be the ultimate connector. I'm never going to be the ultimate salesman. But if I can be a little bit, like, pretty good at each of those things, then I'm going to be pretty good at what it is that I'm trying to do as far as spreading my ideas. So, yeah, I like it. All right. Um, we actually went a lot longer than I thought we were going to. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I'll just go ahead and wrap it up. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Happy holidays. Hope you're uh, with people that you are enjoying the company of uh, while you're listening to this. Uh, thanks for spending uh, 2019 with us. Like, uh, we really enjoyed doing this, and and hopefully uh, we'll be doing more and uh, uh, whispering into your ears in in 2020 as well. So, uh, I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at network nerd underscore signing off adios and may the force be with you